As we prepare to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us life according to your word. Teach us your statutes, make us understand the way of your precepts, and we will meditate on your wondrous works. Strengthen us according to your word, for we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Proverbs, chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here today. We've been considering a series through the book of Proverbs, and we've come to Proverbs chapter 7, right about the middle of your Bible between the books of Psalms and Ecclesiastes, Proverbs chapter 7, and we'll read the entire chapter together and think about uh, this chapter together. So Proverbs chapter 7, beginning our reading at verse 1, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman. From the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen, I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon he will come home. With much seductive speech she persuades him. With her smooth talk she compels him. All at once he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways, and do not stray into her paths, for many a victim she has laid low. And all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, Well, we've been considering a series, as I said, through the book of Proverbs. And we've seen a lot of lessons 
that the Father has given to his Son. Uh, that's the form that many of the, the chapters again and again. Uh, although this last lesson is going to be taught much time on form commentator O. Palmer Robertson had to say about the repetition of this theme. Uh, he said, it might seem the topic of adultery is experiencing a literary overkill. But the very fact of the steady, intensive warning properly recognizes the seriousness of the danger faced by the young man and by the old man as well. Only the repeated words, the commands, the teachings, the wisdom of the concerned father can keep his son from the adulteress, the wayward woman with her seductive words. Um, It's not overkill because this is a real danger a danger that needs bearing out warnings several times repeated in different ways to make sure the warnings land, uh, to make sure the danger is truly appreciated and the safety is truly sought where God teaches us to seek it. And so that's why we're continuing this theme and going through and why the father wants in a particular way to tell this story to show his son the tactics of the forbidden woman uh, that he might resist them. And so what must the son learn from his father in this passage? He has to learn first to cultivate a wise heart. Um, Cultivating a wise heart is where he must begin. And then the father wants his son to consider the woman's hunt. This story is really all told as if uh, she's a predator taking down prey. That's the imagery that's used again and again. So that's how we'll think about it. He wants his son to consider the woman's hunt. And then finally, to keep away from the woman's house. Uh, That's the last part of the lesson the father has to teach. And that's how we want to think about this passage together. The son must cultivate a wise heart, consider the woman's hunt, and keep away from the woman's house. It shouldn't surprise us that the father would say to his son, you need to cultivate a wise heart. Uh, That's what the father has been saying to the son over and over again. And many of the commands the Father gives to open the lesson in the first five verses are lessons and commands we've heard the Father give before, right? We've heard the Father say before, keep my words, treasure up my commandments with you, keep my commandments and live, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. We've heard all of these commands before, we've spent time thinking about what those commands mean, but we've said the Father never just barely repeats his his sermon. He's never just repeating himself endlessly with no, with no addition or no nuance being added to it. It's variations on a theme. It's, it's, it's like a symphony. It's not just the same thing again and again. Um, he, he wants to always nuance what he's saying and bring new kinds of ideas to bear. And there are two new ideas he introduces here in these first four verses that he's not introduced before. And it helps us again to appreciate what he's saying to his son about the importance of doing this. And the importance of keeping, paying attention to wisdom, keeping wisdom in the heart, cultivating this heart of wisdom. And the first new thing the father says is in the second part of verse 2. A new image that he introduces when he says to his son, keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Uh, The apple of the eye is sort of the the pupil, the middle delicate part of our eyes. The part of the eye that really does the seeing. 
Um, it, it's the most important, intimate part of, of the anatomy because we depend on our eyes to be able to see. If, if, if we don't care for our eyes, we won't be able to see where we're going. We won't be able to see light. Without your eyes, all you can see is darkness. And we care for that center part of our eye the most. You know, if you have something in the corner of your eye, you might go after it with a knuckle, but you don't do that with, with the middle central part of your eye. You're careful with your eyes because you realize how precious they are, how necessary they are for sight, for light, for being able to make your way in the world. And the father is using that comparison and saying, son, with the wisdom that we're teaching, the law of God, the wisdom of God that we're passing along, you need to care for it like you would care for the most important part of your, of your anatomy. And why? Because it will do for you what your eyes do for you. What do your eyes do? They help you see. They help you know where to go. They let the light in. And in the same way, wisdom functions that way in the life of God's people. It's the way we see. It's the way we see the world as we ought to see it. It's what gives us the light and guidance of God in the world. To see the world as it truly is and to see where we ought to go. And the Father is saying that's how crucial wisdom is for God's people. So that we can see the world as God wants us to see it. And that we care for this wisdom the way we care for our eyes. Knowing that without it, we'd be doomed to wander in the dark. Right? Maybe we shudder, I hope we shudder when we read those passages in the Old Testament where kings are taken captive and their eyes are put out. Or we think of the sad story of Samson when he has his eyes put out after his strength is gone. We think of the horror of that. Um, And that's that's what the Father is saying. It's the eyes that will help you, just as the eyes help guide you in the world, let you see light. That's what wisdom does for the people of God. It guides us in the world. It helps us see light. So keep this teaching. Keep God's word as you would keep the apple of your eye. That's the first of the kind of new things the Father says. We've seen bind them on your fingers and write them on the tablet of your heart as a way of not just what you think but what you do, the control center of your life and then how you live it out in life. But then he says something new in verse 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call insight your intimate friend. Uh, There is a marriage analogy that the father is using to compare what the son ought to do with wisdom to marriage. Um, Call wisdom your sister. Uh, My sister is an expression that appears often in the Song of Solomon. When the husband addresses his bride, that's how he addresses her. Now, that's that's not how we do things, and it might seem strange to us to hear it that way. Maybe you don't want to take that up in your own families. That's fine. Uh, That's how they did things back then, though. And so when he says to his son, say to wisdom, you are my sister, what he's saying essentially is using a marriage metaphor and saying, take wisdom as your bride. Um, Take her as an intimate friend, Um, someone you draw close to you. And why should the son do that? Well, because wisdom is, as one person put it, the worthiest object of pure and sincere love. 
Draw it close to you. Let wisdom be your close and intimate friend, the way a wife is to a husband. Um, let, let wisdom have that kind of close and intimate fellowship with you. And that marriage metaphor is especially important considering how the foreign woman and the strange woman is described. Right? Take wisdom as your, close, as your bride, as your close friend, especially because that will help you when you meet the forbidden woman and the adulteress with her smooth words. Um, in, in, you'll see in the footnotes in the ESV that when you say the forbidden woman, another way of saying that is strange woman. The adulteress, another way of saying that is the foreign woman. Who's the adulteress? She's the one who is outside your circle of friends. She's the one who is outside the circle of your family. She's the one who is outside the circle of your society. And she's to be kept there. And who are you trying to bring close to you? Who do you want to bring in? Not her. Wisdom. Um, And bring wisdom close. Let wisdom be as a bride to you. Let wisdom be as a close and intimate friend to you. Let her give you counsel. And she will protect you from what the forbidden woman will say to you. This is how the son is to cultivate a heart for wisdom. He's to cultivate it by listening to his father's commands. He's to continue to care for it the way he would care for the apple of his eye. He's to cherish it the way he would cherish a beloved bride and let her be his counselor. See how the father wants the son to just continue to bring wisdom close, to cultivate that heart, that control center with wisdom and to care for it and to cherish it because the father knows the heart that is filled with wisdom in this way then will flow out with wisdom in what he does. Because if he cultivates wisdom and he cares for wisdom and he cherishes wisdom, wisdom will be carried out in what he does. It will be his defense wherever he goes. It will show him the way and lead him in the right way. And that's always what God's word wants for God's people. For the word incarnate for Christ to dwell in us richly. And why does God want the the word of Christ to dwell in us richly? So that Christ would flow out of us and be carried out of us in what we do in the world. We would do the things that are pleasing to God. And that a heart filled with Christ would flow out in service to Christ in what we do in the world. And will keep us from danger. Because there are dangers in the world that are hunting out God's people. And that's why the father first says you need to cultivate a heart of wisdom, but then you also need to consider how the wicked hunt for precious lives. That was the message of Proverbs 6, and it's being shown to us in a picture form here. Only that wisdom that has been cultivated and cared for and cherished can protect from the prowling adulteress who is out there. Uh, The wickedness that you will meet in the world. And the father is saying, you know, I've seen it. I've seen this kind of thing from my window. I've seen what happens to people who wander around without this kind of wisdom. And I've seen them taken down. I've been an eyewitness to how the wicked wife works. And he wants to be a witness to his son. And the story is told in terms of a hunt. 
Um, the metaphors are all of hunting. Um, and so we want to think about it in that way. It's a hunt complete with prey, with a predator, with the tactics, and finally with the kill. That's how the father describes the story. Well, who is the prey then in the story? Well, it's the young man we meet in verse 7. I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. This is one of the crowd of people we met way back in chapter 1. One of the simple ones who ignored all wisdom's counsel and would have none of wisdom's reproof. Um, And the father sees one of this crowd and describes him as a young man lacking sense. It's a very interesting description. Because if we wanted to take it woodenly out of, out of Hebrew, we, we would actually translate it, it's a young man lacking heart. Uh, very literally, it says he lacks heart. He doesn't have the heart the father wants the son to have. He doesn't have the heart, and that translates to lacking sense. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know where he's going. And the peril of the one who lacks heart, who lacks sense is very clear from this passage, right? The senseless youth wanders. Uh, He wanders into danger without knowing it. He's described as someone who wanders into the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time, right? Without knowing it, he's walking into a really dangerous place. That's what verse 8 tells us. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. He's in a dangerous place, and he's there at a dangerous time as night is falling, right? In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. That's when evil deeds often happen, but we know when you wander into a bad neighborhood, that's the worst time to be there, at nighttime. Um, He's in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he doesn't really know his danger, One person put it, dull and incautious, unaware of his danger and lacking a firm commitment to the right way. He also lacks the sense not to put himself into moral jeopardy by straying into the adulteress's path. And that's how he's presented, just prey, kind of wandering around. Then the father introduces us to the predator, who he describes in verses 10 through 12. Behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. Um, She's dressed to kill, figuratively and literally. And what's going on in her heart? Here's not a heart that lacks sense. Here's a wily heart. She knows exactly what she's doing. If he has no idea what he's doing, she knows exactly what she's doing. Um, And she is doing it all the time. She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market. In every corner, she lies in wait. Um, now, the, the point here is not you know, the woman's place is in the home, and so she's always where she shouldn't be. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is she's always out to and fro looking to make trouble. You can always depend on her to be out trying to make trouble. Um, she's, she's loud. She's wayward. She's out trying to make trouble in all of her familiar haunts. She's restless until she does her, her evil deeds. She's not at peace in her own place. That's the thrust of that. And she has familiar hunting grounds where she goes around lying in wait for who she can devour. 
now at every street, now in the market, at every corner, she lies in wait. She's waiting to ambush just the kind of person who's about to wander into her path. Um, And when the predator meets the prey, we know what happens. Uh, The predator begins to use its tactics to take down the prey. Um, And what are her tactics? We read the long description of that in verses 13 through 21. Uh, She begins with a kind of brash and shocking encounter. She seizes him and kisses him. Um, just sort of out of nowhere. Um, and she's not sorry about it. But that's not the principal way she seizes him. That's the way she gets his attention. But how does she really take him down? It's not by her actions. It's, a, it's by her words. There's a flood of words that pour out of her mouth in all kinds of different directions as she talks to this young man who lacks sense. And she just spews forth all sorts of reasons that he should come with her. Um, The first are sort of pseudo-religious words. I've just made an offering, um, and both in Israel and in pagan offerings, there was a time where you would offer a sacrifice, and you would take part of it back as a fellowship meal, and you sometimes would invite people to participate in fellowship meals. There were Israel peace offerings that worked like that. You had to eat them that day. So there'd be a cause for bringing people into the celebration. The Canaanites had, had fertility rituals that were somewhat similar, only usually involved not just eating a meal together, but a sexual fertility ritual that would follow the meal. So she's trying to conceal her lustful desires behind the pseudo-religious language, that somehow what she really needs is someone to help celebrate this religious feast with her. So she uses pseudo-religious words to entice him. She uses flattering words in verse 15 to entice him. I came out looking for just the right guy, and here you are. Just what I was looking for. Flatters him with her words. Seductive words in verses 16 through 18. Someone called it less than subtle suggestiveness when she talks about her bed being ready. And then the outright proposition of verse 18. It's call for immediate action. In very familiar language, the kind of language of love that the father told his son he should only find in his wife. She now perverts that language and invites him to find that with her. Seductive words. And then reassuring words. You don't have to worry about my husband. He's out of town. He's on a long journey. I know exactly when he's coming back. You won't have to worry about that. Don't worry, we won't get caught. There won't be any consequences if you come in. You know, it's interesting. She says, my husband, but again, sort of woodenly in Hebrew, she says, the man of the house is not at home. Almost as if she distances the fact that she's married. As with all these, this flood of words come at him. Pseudo-religious words, flattering words, seductive words, reassuring words, all just right steadily out at him, forcing him to come. And he comes. He goes with her. All at once, she takes him down. That's the description. She diverts his desires, and then she diverts his whole body into her house. And before he knows it, he's following after her. All at once, we're told, in verse 22, he's following after her. It's communicating to us. He does it. He acts on his stirred up desires without thinking about it twice. 
He goes right after her. And how does the father immediately change the metaphor? He follows her into the home like an ox going to the slaughter. Like a deer being caught in a snare, not knowing that the hunter is going to come by and shoot it. Like a bird who rushes into a snare, uh, not knowing that it will cost him his life. All of those are hunting metaphors. All metaphors for dumb animals who don't know any better that they're walking into their deaths. Here is very swift. All different animals chosen, I think, the commentator said, just as stupid animals see no connection between traps and death. Morally stupid people see no connection between their sins and their death. And the father says to his son, I've seen it happen. Um, consider the way she hunts, and keep away from her house. We often say, what's the best way to avoid being in the wrong place at the wrong time? Don't go to the wrong place. If you stay away from the wrong place, you're sure not to be there at the wrong time. And that's what the father impresses on his son, not just his son, but all the generations of his sons. He says, you don't want to end up where they all end up. Um, And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways and do not stray into her paths. Again, not surprisingly, what does the father say? Where did that senseless man fail? He failed in his heart. He let his heart be turned. And as soon as his heart was turned, the whole control center of himself was turned and he went where he shouldn't go. He was led astray. And so, what is his counsel to all of us? Don't let your heart turn after sinful desires. Because once the heart turns, everything else follows after. Um, we have to guard our hearts so they don't turn away from God into the ways which we should not walk. Um, and to recognize how that was accomplished by that flood of words in all kinds of different directions, all with the same goal, to negate God's truth with her lies. She doesn't really care which words work. She'll throw them all out there and just hope that something sticks. It's It's a completely dishonest act on her part. Nothing about what she says can really be believed. Um, It's important for us to recognize that that's still how evil works today. To just try to throw all kinds of words and see whatever sticks. People use a lot of pseudo-religious words in our day. Well, God's not really opposed to that kind of living. That That was an old way of thinking. That's not really what the Bible says. God's not opposed to those things. Um, and that's pseudo-religious because the Bible is very clear that God is opposed to sexual sin of every kind. Um, they try flattery and seduction. We've thought about before that one of the most popular tricks the devil and his servants love to play is the game of deeds separated from consequences. That you can have the sin without the misery. You can have the joy without the pain. You can have the deed without the consequence. The devil has been running that play since the beginning. Go ahead and eat from the tree. You, don't, you will not die. That consequence will not follow. 
You, you will not get caught. You won't have to pay the cost of it. You won't have to pay the consequences. And what does the father want to drive home to his son, to every generation of his sons? The biblical truth that the wages of sin is death. Always. For every sin, the wages of sin is death. And so the only thing to be done is to stay away. Stay away in your heart. Stay away physically from her house. Don't go where she is. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Because the Father says, you know, wisdom allows you to see where the end really is. And where is the end of sin? The wages of sin is death. Her house is the way to Sheol. Going down to the chambers of death. The wages of sin is death, always. And so it is with sexual sin and all sin. Like one commentator said too about this particular kind of sin. He said, the temptress promises sexual love without, without erotic restraint but she refuses to make the fundamental commitment of self to him that is required for true love. Her sort of eroticism leads to complications, even death, and so it must be rejected. To say physically I am giving myself to you while emotionally and spiritually holding back from covenanted commitment is in fact to live a lie. A split in the personality, which is ultimately stressful, and destructive. I think that's a really wonderful insight into this kind of sin in particular because it pretends you can separate the physical from the emotional and the spiritual. The world says that all the time. It can't be done. It's a lie. It's taking and splitting what God has intended to all stay together. In a covenanted commitment in marriage, the whole of self is given to the other. That's the biblical picture. I am the beloved's and the beloved is mine. The whole of the self is given emotionally, spiritually, and physically. That's how God designed this to function and to be protected within a covenant commitment. To try to pretend you can split those things out is to live a lie. That's why this sin is particularly Deadly. Because she offers what can really only be found in marriage. Right? A complete covenant commitment. It's emotional, spiritual, and physical that offers true love and true life. Whereas what the, the adulterous woman offers really is a false love and a true death. That's what sin is always doing for us. It tells us that you'll find something else if you go into her house with her. And the truth is you find death. There's something else to be found in her bedroom than death. But the wisdom of God says, no, there's actually only death in there. That's why God doesn't want us to go in there. That's why none of the false words that the, that the world throws at things will change the reality that the wages of sin is death. And why do we harp on this in this way? Um, it's, you know, at this point we might be thinking, this is kind of a downer. 
Um, we get it. The wages of sin is death. We have to hear it 15 more times. Uh, are we about done? This is the fourth time we've gone through this topic. Uh, are we about done? Um, but why is it so important that we understand this and understand what God is saying to us? It's important for this reason. God is not a God who is against joy and happiness, who is out to ruin the party. What is God trying to do for us? He's trying to show us that what we would do on our own would wander senselessly into suffering and death. And God in his goodness and mercy is lighting that way before us to say, this is where it will go and I don't want you to die. You see, it gets twisted around as if God is just trying to deny the good things that the world offers when the exact opposite is true. That's what the devil did all the way back in the garden. There's this great thing beyond the command of God that he just doesn't want you to have. He's just the eternally, the rain on the parade God. And if you just walk away from him, you'll walk right into pleasures and glory. In fact, you'll be just like him. And what is always the truth? What's on the other side of that door? Always. It's suffering and death. And it's a testimony to the goodness of our God that he says, I don't want you to die. I don't want you to suffer. I want you to live. I want you to have life and have it abundantly. And he comes to us as one who knows what he's talking about. Because the Lord Jesus Christ can say to us, You know, I've descended into death. I've gone into the chamber. Not because I was misled. I walked in the ways of wisdom. I followed the path of life. I descended into the chamber for you. And our God comes to us as a God who can say, I've seen the horror there. I'm not just describing something to you I don't know. I've gone there. I've seen the damage. I've been to the place where the victims are laid low. Where the murdered are a mighty throng. He's passed into hell. He knows what it is to experience death, physical and eternal. It's that picture that we can't completely see because he, sh- he covered it with a veil of darkness when Christ was on the cross. We can hear it when it wrung from him the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have a God who went there for us so that we would not go there. So that this is as close as believers would come to it. But he comes as a God who says, I know the horror of that place. And I don't want you to find it. I want you to live. I want you to have life. And that abundantly. So that that's as close to that awful place as you ever come. So that you would stay away from that house and walk that path that leads to life. And to light where you can have eternal life and have that abundantly. That's why Jesus died for us who believe in his name. That's why he gave us his spirit to guide us on the way we ought to go.
so that we would not depart from that path. God is not trying to diminish your life by his commands. He gives the commands because he understands better than you do what it means that the wages of sin is death. And he doesn't want us to be like the senseless youth who ignores his counsel and reproofs and dies in his sin. He wants you to receive life as his gift. To have life in Christ and to have it abundantly. And so he calls on us all to choose life by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And then he calls us to walk in step with the Spirit for our good and for our Savior's glory. May God grant that we would all walk on the path that leads to life and find it by grace through faith in Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you repeat yourself to us so that we can be sure we understand what you're saying and why you're saying it. We thank you for your great love for us that you would seek to save the lives of unworthy sinners who are walking the way to death. So we pray that you would help us to cultivate a heart of wisdom, that we might listen to your words, that we would cultivate it and care for it and cherish it in our hearts, that we might carry it out in lives of service to you, to walk in the paths that lead to life. And how thankful we are for the Lord Jesus Christ who came into this world and who walked perfectly the path of life so that his righteousness could be ours. And yet descended into the chambers of death in our place. He who knew no sin becoming sin for us, that in him we might become your righteousness. We thank you that he can testify to us about the awfulness of that place and seek to turn us away from it. Pray that we would hear his warning, heed his call and follow his way. We thank you that you've made a way out for unworthy sinners that we would avoid death and not experience the wages of sin as death but receive eternal life as your gift in Christ. Thank you for being good to us and we pray we would glorify you with our lives. Hear our prayers for we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.